0: With all due respect to all of the other guests that I have spoken to on the morning show over the last few years, I don't remember being as excited as I am today speaking with one of the finest concert pianists in all the world, Jeremy Denk. Uh, He is, in short, a genius, and if you don't believe me, ask the folks at the MacArthur Foundation who have given him one of their famous MacArthur Genius Fellowships, but uh, beyond that is... uh, a career of extraordinary accomplishment. Jeremy Denk has played with tremendous distinction on concert stages throughout the world. And uh, he has now given the world an amazing book, one of the best books about music that I have ever read, a book called Every Good Boy Does Fine, a love story in music lessons. Surely most of you uh, are aware that if you want to learn the names of the notes on the lines of the treble clef staff. One way to remember them is EGBDF, Every Good Boy Does Fine. Beyond those simple words is an extraordinarily rich and deeply personal book in which Jeremy Dink ushers us into, in a sense, the world of the studio, where one is taught by a music teacher, and the studio or practice room where one goes to learn and deepen one's craft, whether you are a pianist or a singer or whatever kind of musician you are. And uh, this is an experience, of course, for a fair number of people that is entirely alien, foreign, but uh, it becomes uh, remarkably familiar uh, because of the way in which he ushers us into that world uh, with, with such vividness. Uh, the book is published by Random House. Again, it's titled Every Good Boy Does Fine. A love story in music lessons, and Jeremy Denk, we welcome you to the morning show.
1: Thank you so much. What an introduction! Yeah. I'm honored.
0: I want to also say that I remember with great pleasure uh, your performance. I think roughly five years ago with the Milwaukee Symphony when you played Mozart. If memory serves me correctly, uh, Mozart's uh, Piano Concerto Number 19, and it was it was really a a a, a lovely. Uh, illuminating performance in so many different ways. And I suspect some of our listeners remember that. And uh, I know you have also played with the Chicago Symphony, and we have listeners uh, in northern Illinois as well who perhaps have encountered you there. Uh, What have the last couple of years been like with COVID? Uh, I've talked to a number of different musicians and performance artists of various kinds about what a painful time this has been for you. What has this been like for you?
1: Um, well, it's been a mix of things. Of course, it was very painful because I was working on a big project, the Well-Tempered Clavier of Bach, and I had a big tour lined up, and it all vanished you know, in more or less a day. Uh, and that had been you know, a year and a half or two years of work. Uh, so I was a little demoralized at first. And, uh, but you know, I, <clears throat> I, I enjoyed having a little time to think and a little space to practice without deadlines. Uh, uh, eventually, and I and of course I had this book due, uh, so it turned out to be the perfect moment for me to work on this project and to really immerse myself in memories of piano lessons. And uh, so I was saved by so was saved by the book in a certain way of the <laughs> pandemic laws. Yeah.
0: Very good. I read the essay that you wrote for the New Yorker magazine. I think that was back in 2013, um, which in a sense, as a precursor of, of this book, and in that you talk about uh, several of your p- most important piano teachers, and one in particular that we'll talk about at some length. At that point in time, were you already sort of hoping that you might be able to uh, create a, a book that would explore all of this in even more detail?
1: No, it didn't even remotely occur to me that that would happen, but you know, the piece in The New Yorker happened because I, in a way, begged them to write a love letter to my teacher, George Shebbuk, in Bloomington. Uh, and, and I, you know, I did it for a long time, as I do with a lot of projects. But how, how do you capture the magic of your teacher in words? Um, and, and they encouraged me to compare Shebbuk to an earlier teacher or make it more of a, you know, a narrative. So it turned out to be basically two teachers, right? A story of two very different people who were important influences on me. And I, you know, when I finished it, um, it, it got a lot of readers, you know, people, people even like science people I know, you know, they, they were moved by the sense of mentorship and these really fraught relationships that we have with our teachers and how to deal with their influences and when you have to sort of shake them off, and when you, you know, anyway, that. I was amazed by the response that that piece got and, and of course, even more amazed to get a book deal out of it. Hmm.
0: How much writing have you done? How much writing, serious writing, did you do before that piece appeared in The New Yorker? I mean, is this something that you have all along enjoyed doing, even uh, while experiencing the gauntlet of a professional music career?
1: You know, I, I was trying to sum this all up, but basically, in college, I was writing a lot you know, papers and creative writing stuff, and um, and I loved writing. And then in my 20s, you know, when I graduated, I was like, I've got to get serious about the piano. <laughs> I'm just going to practice, you know. And then in my 30s, someone said, you know, you really love talking and reading and writing and words, and you should start a blog. And <clears throat> And so I did, you know, the very next day. And uh, and it, it felt like a release valve for all kinds of emotions and thoughts about music and life that I had been keeping pent up. So uh, it was the gift of my friend's suggestion that made me start writing again in my 30s. And I had been doing a lot of blogging and then some reviews and some you know pieces here and there in and, and magazines
0: about about music. So
1: yeah, I had been writing that by that point for about 10 years more or
0: less. I want to be sure to mention that among the most delicious elements in this book, aside from just your prodigious memory. I mean, I'm just really blown away by how you are able to recall in, in minute detail, uh, some of these experiences you had with, with piano teachers. I mean, decades ago by this point, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that, uh, helps kind of bring all of it to life is some of the images that we are given graphic images, uh, of your own writing from some kind of musical notebook that you must have been keeping back in your childhood. Sometimes it is images right. of music on which you have written in your sort of childish scrawl, and sometimes it is even pieces of music that you have written, I think, I mean, in, in, in absolutely handwritten fashion, uh, as, as a young person might. Uh, tell us about where all of those images actually come from and and uh and how it is that you still have all of that uh, all these years later
1: <laughs> someone asked me that yesterday the answer is fairly simple my mom kept all that stuff my, my my piano lesson notebook uh from my you know like teen early teen years um of course you know that just stayed in the closet forever and ever uh, and my parents were, you know, they didn't clean out that closet. That was sort of my precious shrine of piano music and stuff. So it was there. And my mom, of course, kept my earliest compositions and, and some music that I used to play as a kid, and you know, and pictures of things. So and I also kept, you know, for some reason, I uh, kept a lot of uh, English papers and assignments that I did from high school. I kept them in a big box called memorabilia. So I'm lucky to have this, these documents, and some of them are very funny. Um, I was shocked to read my, you know, this manifesto that I wrote about the ideal utopian society when I was fourteen or something, uh, which is mostly about time management, which was always a problem for me then and now. You know?
0: I want to ask you about the subtitle of the book. Again, the main title "Every Good Boy Does Fine." The subtitle is "A Love Story in Music Lessons." Although you've already hinted at what I suspect is the answer to this, I nevertheless want to give you a chance to expand on that and explain how this is above all else a love story
1: Well, it's a love for music, of course to start with you know the first scene in the book is me encountering a passage in Mozart just still one of my favorite moments in all the music um, but it's also probably more deeply about these incredibly intense relationships that I had with teachers who, who were in a way closer to me than my parents and, and my f- my friends. I didn't have that many friends in junior high and high school. So, um, but, but, you know, the, the way that also like certain teachers revealed to me things about music um, made me feel a love for them that was, that was, deeper than almost any other relationship in my life you know and 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 i try to write in the book about the you know my incompetence at at interpersonal relationships during that period meanwhile i'm pursuing kind of single-mindedly this love for music you know under the guidance of my teachers um and i hope that that people feel that sort of contrast of (laughs) you know uh Emotional intensities of different kinds bouncing off each other uh, in, in my life. I think that's an experience that a lot of music students have. You know, They get incredibly drawn into a teacher, and, and it's wonderful, and then it's dangerous.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're speaking with Jeremy Denk, one of the finest concert pianists in the world, and a fine writer as well, as evidenced by this brand new book that has just been published by Random House called Every Good Boy Does Fine, a love story in music lessons in which he explores, among other things, uh, not only his life as a musician, but also uh, the powerful relationships that he has had with an array of piano teachers over the years, beginning with uh, his very first lessons that occurred uh, back when he was, I think you were six years old when you first started playing the piano? Is that-
1: yeah, almost six, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. There.
0: And of course, your teachers are a wide array, uh, from uh, people who had been concert pianists themselves to uh, to teachers who are more the the ilk of, the, of what one might find in a small community, um, earnest and devoted, and and doing the very very best that they can. And it's it's an extraordinary experience for us to meet each of them, and I appreciate the affection and respect and appreciation with which you talk about each and every each and every one of them. Uh I wonder if uh if you could just kind of talk about what it feels like to write about not only yourself but also about real people and and real people with with both uh admirable qualities and some that are not so admirable. And I wonder it just feels like a uh unfailingly honest book was it harder to be in a sense honest and frank about your teachers as it was to be honest about yourself
1: um well i guess i felt from the beginning that that was the only kind of book i was really interested in writing uh, there are a lot of beautiful classical music memoirs that tend to sort of focus on the glamour and the you know the successes and and joys of music, um, and I wanted to write something a little closer to how it, you know, it felt at the moment, and and I feel a little guilty about you know talking about, for example, my teacher at Oberlin, who was a wonderful pianist and a wonderful teacher, Joseph Schwartz, um, but we were the wrong match at the you know wrong time, right? He was too much like my father, something, 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 you know. It just was. I needed something else, and I couldn't quite figure out what that was. And I was 16 years old, and. You know, I found myself rebelling against him. I decided to write the book as, write about the teachers as I saw them then, not as how I would think about them now, if that makes any sense. Uh, and and that includes including, you know, the bad breath of one of them, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, the, the really weird details that become such an important part of, of your music teacher uh, experience when you're a kid. Um, and and probably you know, and I, probably
0: things that mattered more now or, or mattered more to you then than matter to you now.
1: That's right. You know, for example, like I talk about Lillian Livingston, my teacher, you know, it's in my age of more or less seven to ten, and she made me cry more or less every lesson, right? uh, you know, mm-hmm. after or before or in anticipation. She was she had a lot of you know standards, and she kept you know yelling at me about certain things and. <clears throat> And now I've met her more recently, and she's really fun and funny and, and wild and, and not at all intimidating, you know? Um, so I wanted to capture that, you know, the youthful experience so that, you know, parents and students can all appreciate the way that music teaching actually feels, how how scary it is um, at times. And then, of course, at times, you know, like the best thing in the world.
0: Mm. I. I was touched by a moment that you don't spend a lot of time talking about but the fact that if I remember correctly your first teacher in effect handed you off to a more advanced teacher because mm-hmm. your your gifts warranted that and uh, the same thing happened to me I'm not saying my gifts are yours but but I mean but as a young pianist uh one of my first piano teachers essentially did the same thing and, and I don't think I appreciate it at the time. I think I appreciate it more after thinking about it and reading your book, how, what an act of generosity that is uh, that not all piano teachers are probably capable of doing, of taking a gifted student and handing them off to, to somebody else to work with because they believe, and probably rightly, that that other teacher is going to be able to take them someplace that, 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 uh, that the first teacher perhaps cannot
1: yeah, that was a that was a beautiful thing. I you know, of course didn't quite understand it all when I was a kid, but my I think my parents definitely appreciated the generosity of that and they appreciated also, you know, the the teacher is trying to tell them here you've got somebody who could be a, a musician and you need to um devote some resources to cultivating this ability.
0: I also appreciated uh, brought back such memories of my own piano lessons of long, long ago uh, I think this is when you're talking about uh, uh, Professor Leland from New Mexico State, who uh, yeah. was one of your teachers. I don't think that's before you were in college, but uh, but uh, he was yeah. your teacher when you were relatively young. And you described the way in which he wouldn't just sort of paste a star on a given piece when you did well, but uh, but actually he would create sometimes rather elaborate illustrations to convey exactly uh sort of the depth of his feeling about how you had succeeded and once in a while how you had actually maybe disappointed him uh describe to our listeners what i'm talking about
1: (laughs) well i think he figured out very early on that i uh i would need humor somehow to be inspired uh and and productive so uh, his wife was also a, a piano teacher for kids um and she had these little stars, you know, paste on stars that she put on people's uh, music when they did well. Um, and he would draw, so he started drawing stars in my notebook. You know, he was a good drawer also. And, you know, if I played well, it would be like a Superman star, you know, beaming with pride with a smile, sort of chest out or whatever. And then, you know, but if it was not quite so good, they might have one broken, you know, leg and some crushes. <laughs> <laughs> or you know they could look just forlorn and kind of droopy um, there are all kinds of things these stars would be, but if it was really bad um he he once drew a slug for the sheer level of uh, in inattention that I had, and once he you know we had these poisonous red centipedes in New Mexico, where I grew up, and he drew one of those it was very hairy and disgusting, uh and that was I think the worst week of lessons that I ever had with him.
0: As you think about what you were like as a youngster, obviously with tremendous promise right from the start, uh, is it easy to trace kind of a single line in terms of where you were and where you ended up? Or in, in, in terms of what needed to improve about your playing, what you needed to work on the most, is that a fairly sort of steady line? Or were the issues that affected you and that needed to be addressed... Did those actually vary, maybe even wildly, uh, as you grew into adolescence and eventually into young adulthood?
1: I think it's fair to say, you know, there are some linear aspects to it. You know, you you build the muscles, slowly but surely, you know, certain kind of skills when you're a kid. But, but in another sense, your needs change wildly, maybe especially when you get to college, you know. You start paying attention to one thing, for example, rhythm or, you know, or... Or clarity of touch, or whatever you start paying attention to, and then you go overboard, you know, as we all do in life, and you have to start paying attention to other things. And, and I, and I hope in the book people read that, you know, you need different kinds of teachers at different times. You know, Joe Schwartz might have been a great teacher for me, you know, seven years later, because he had such a beautiful, you know, lyrical approach and a, and, a, and a beautiful frame of the hand. But, but it was the wrong thing for me at that moment, uh, and. Uh, you know, I ended up really being drawn to this Norman Fisher, who was a cello professor, who was trying to teach me about character and how to animate, you know, pieces of music as if I was an actor, you know, as if I was Laurence Olivier or something, trying to become the character of the piece, the, the composer, moment by moment. And that lesson became so powerful for me, you know, and I really, you know, I drank it up, you know, like like crazy. And 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 then. And then it was too much again, you know. So I would say it's both a linear process and a wildly changing, very emotional and very um, capricious process. Right. Uh, the act of learning. Yeah.
0: At one point, and and uh, honestly, I don't remember if this is in the book or in your New Yorker piece, perhaps in both. But uh, you 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 describe what you call at one point the various species of teacher. The holistic nurturers and the sarcastic beraters, the belittlers, the analyzers, the gym coaches, the old hands who believe yeah. that musicianship can't really be taught. I mean, uh, I mean, the teachers come in all stripes, and, and I think you are mostly saying that there's probably a, a a role for all of them to play. There is not just one kind of teacher, when we're talking about piano teachers, that is the best kind of piano teacher. And maybe not even a single teacher who is the best teacher for that particular student. sounds like, in your case, you feel like you benefited greatly from studying under different kinds of teachers.
1: Of course, because, you know, I had piano teachers, and they were amazing. And then especially when I got to Shedluck, I felt like it sort of centered my you know piano persona in a way. But uh, I can't tell you how important it was for me to study music with singing professors. Or, even though I make a lot of singer jokes in the book, which I still haven't gotten any hate mail for. But I will, I'm sure. But, you know, singing <laughs> professors taught me about, you know, melody shaping and the voice and vocal support. And then, then as I said, the cello professor taught me so much about how to animate um, and, and inhabit character. And then, you know, there were other, you know, the, I, I mentioned a lot of Greg Fulkerson, who was a real hard, uh, hard-ass hard teacher. I don't know if we can say that on the radio. Um, <laughs> he He was truly, you know, he he loved to make fun of you and he chose a very uh, sort of adversarial style. He was very concentrated on, you know, doing what's in the score, you know, as every composer marking, you know, incredible attention to detail. And and that was ridiculously important for me. He showed me so many things about music that I, you know. So I was very lucky uh, that I had so many teachers. At times it was like Oh, God, I'm totally overwhelmed that I didn't know which path to follow. And that's part of the book, too, I guess.
0: Absolutely. I really uh, resonated with what you talked about in terms of going to Oberlin and how you say at Oberlin, my single teacher split into 10 or 20. And by that, you mean that you were accompanying at the piano lessons and all kinds of different studios there. And so you were a spectator uh, in in other people's lessons and not piano lessons, but cello lessons and violin lessons and voice lessons and so on. And Mm. I had kind of the opposite experience in my graduate program as a singer, Uh, pursuing a vocal degree, but my, my assistantship, graduate assistantship was as an accompanist. And so I was learning in all of these instrumental studios and in other voice studios as well. But I came away similarly appreciative of how rich that was uh, in terms of, of seeing great teaching and once in a while seeing not so great teaching. And I suppose that's also valuable in and of itself.
1: Yeah, I saw some not so great teaching. I saw all kinds of things, but, um, you know, another theme of the book, I guess, is that when when you're not the student, you know, when you're collaborating with someone else and they're focused, the teacher is focused on them. Um, your ego gets a little out of the way, you know. The lesson's not really about you, and then you're able to learn a little better. I guess I have you know a hope that some young music students will read this and and realize how important it is not to um to surrender a little ego and just enjoy the act of learning um even if it feels sometimes like it's eroding some of your your safety you know and comfort yeah
0: i also wonder particularly at this point as you are uh reaching college age and so on uh, in the new york times review of your book they they talk about how you among other things speak very openly about uh what you were like as as, as a youngster, uh, very much out of step with most of your peers, and the New York Times uh, terms you as socially oblivious. Uh, and I don't know <laughs> if you would <laughs> appreciate. Yeah,
1: I think that's the perfect the perfect description of what I was. <laughs> and you know, sometimes,
0: uh, yeah. Should we so dance?
1: In no way unfair.
0: Yeah. Right. So we've danced around this a little bit, but I I want you to st- uh, talk for a moment about how music was an arena in which I suspect that was not true or not true to the same extent. Or was it? I mean, some of the difficulty you had kind of out in the real world with with kind of all of your peers. uh, Contrast that with what it was like, for instance, to be at Oberlin. And, for instance, making music in chamber music situations and so on, and just being at a place where so many people took music so seriously. Would that be a a chapter in your life then in which, in a sense, that social obliviousness was no longer there? Or were there still instances in which you sometimes struggled uh, in terms of figuring out who you were and how you fit in with others?
1: Well, you know... Some of my social obliviousness was pure defense mechanism. Uh, when I was in high school, you know, I was a, a couple of grades ahead uh, because of the, we moved and it was a school system thing. And, and so, uh, you know, it wasn't really possible for me to be friends with my classmates. But then there was a little band of us classical music loving kids there, you know, geeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we clung to each other. And, and it was something. But you're right, when I went to Oberlin, uh, and to college, uh, at 16, a little bit young, uh, I had a very steep learning curve of how to behave around my peers. Um, of course there was the joy of being around all these other conservatory students, you know, I don't know if forget, there's six or 700 of us studying music there, classical music mostly, um, whatever that term means, uh. And there we there we can hang out in the lounge and talk about music and just really immerse ourselves and not feel, um, as we sometimes did in, in Las Cruces, a little bit ashamed or a little bit nervous about being so, so geeky. But there we could really go for it. Um, but then the wider question, you know, I did all these incredibly stupid things uh, with people during that period because I was, at least in part, completely overwhelmed by various questions like, am I a pianist, you know? Will I succeed in the world of music? You know, um, uh, you know, do I do I still need to be the teacher's pet, or can I be something else? You know, um, what is life for? Stuff like you know, college stuff. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, trying to play the piano, you know, as best I can. Uh, and my teacher assigned me all these incredibly hard pieces. You know, and I was struggling with some of them. So there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff to deal with in my first couple of years, especially at Oberlin. Uh, I think when I went to grad school, that was the time when a lot of pressures went away, and I just became focused on my lessons, you know, and music. And and the sort of personal dramas began to fade a little bit. Mm. And that was a really useful time. Mm.
0: We're speaking with concert pianist Jeremy Denk, who is now also a best-selling author, uh, thanks to a marvelous book that has just been published by Random House called Every Good Boy Does Fine, a love story in music lessons in which he chronicles his life as a musician, uh, including uh, the powerful experiences, life-transforming experiences he had with an array of piano teachers and most particularly uh, an amazing uh, pianist and teacher originally from Hungary, Georgi Šebak, uh with whom he, he studied at Indiana University and had really... Powerful experiences, one on top of another. Um, Jeremy Denk, I I think one of the things that impresses me most, and, but I also wonder about, is what it is like, what it felt like, to want to pay tribute in print to someone who was such an important part of your life and trying to tell the story uh, in the richest kind of detail uh, that people, including non-musicians, would would understand. I should think that felt like quite the intimidating challenge. I mean, one you met beautifully, I think, but uh, how intimidated were you by the prospect of writing about Georgi Shebok and your experiences with him?
1: Um, you know, that was the first impulse of this whole piece. The book wouldn't exist without this desire to capture him, recapture him, in some ways i I felt once I started writing about him that it became easier <laughs> than writing about myself. uh He had such a beautiful and and unusual persona, you know walking around the halls of Bloomington Music School in his you know double breasted suit and constantly elegant you know delivering these weird Zen sayings and smoking his long handled cigarette and talking about the immensities of music and then the tiniest tiniest physical details and connecting. One to the other, in always surprising metaphors and ways. So it was kind of an endless resource of joy for me to remember those lessons, both the wonderful things and a little bit of the heartbreak of, of feeling, you know, as with all your teachers, that you disappoint them at times. Um, yeah, and, and you know, you, you could spend. I you know, it broke my heart also to have to leave out. You know, eventually, in the final book, we left out a you know a couple beautiful scenes. Of, of him teaching, but I put so much of him in there, and I, I do hope that I manage to do him some justice as a, as a musician and a person.
0: One of the things he said about you at one point in the time you studied with him is uh, to you, he said, The problem with you is that you are a perfectionist. Uh, those words might not make sense uh, to somebody from the outside looking in, and maybe even to certain insiders. Uh, they might believe with all their hearts that this is all about perfectionism, uh, that perfectionism couldn't possibly be a, a counterproductive thing. But clearly it can be when it comes to the piano. In what way were you a perfectionist or in what way were you demonstrating perfectionism that was a cause of concern for your teacher, Georgi Shabuck?
1: As always, I think his word choices were very specific. He didn't say I was too perfect, which I certainly wasn't <laughs> uh, at the piano. Um, a perfectionist meant that, in my desire not to miss any notes or just stay you know exactly so and you know do my best and escape criticism, I uh, wasn't allowing myself some freedom of music making and sound, and you know. I wasn't allowing the music to breathe through this desire to stay on the track, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, he also struggled with that issue in some ways. And he always said that his favorite moment in a concert was when he missed the first notes. so and he could say, ah, now I can actually make music. I don't have to worry about being perfect. Anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, Uh, That
0: reminds me of one of my favorite moments, which is when when Horowitz returned to the concert stage for the first time in something like 13 years, played at Carnegie Hall in 1966. There is a live recording of that, and he sits down at the piano. I think Bach is the first thing he plays, and his hands come down in this ugly tangle of wrong notes, and uh, whoever had managed the concert nearly had a heart attack backstage, and then from there it was sublime. It was almost as though it got all of the nerves of that occasion out of the way and played so beautifully. You describe your first lesson with uh, Georgi Scherbach uh, as being one in which uh, the whole point of it was, in your words, to ennoble the art of practicing. Describe what he did with you in that very first lesson in which I think you played Brahms. What he did that was, in, in a sense, going to open the door to a different kind of practicing for you.
1: Actually, I played, um, which was a very uh, chutzpah-filled thing for me to do, I played for him a Mozart sonata in C minor. It was very stern, uh, and it was the first piece I'd heard him play maybe you know, five months earlier uh, in Oberlin. Uh, And the first thing he did was walk over to a drawing, a Michelangelo, that he had on his wall. And he started pointing out, you know, darker lines and fainter lines and all kinds of different lines that Michelangelo used to create this beautiful, beautiful image. And... And, you know, as you may know, Mozart uh, is full of rests, right? Little places where the music stops and then the next bit of music begins. And, and he was trying to show me how all these different pauses between the musical moments should be different. Some of the lines were darker, some of the lines were lighter. And the whole essence of Mozart, in a way, was to sort of hear the meanings of those silences as they moved from one character to another and that I should spend more of my time practicing, th- listening to those silences, you know, yeah. rather than obsessing about the notes. Yeah? Well, that's, I guess that's a way of ennobling practicing, right? Creating a new purpose for it and sort of also using practicing to think about the, the style itself. You know, what is Mozart trying to say? Um, so that was classic Sherbrooke, and I, it comp- almost completely went over my head at first. And only later I'm able to really reconstruct what he was, <laughs> what uh, it, he was after. Yeah. I'm yeah.
0: conflating that, I think, and I remember that now, but I'm conflating it with another experience in, w- in which you sat with him, and I believe you were playing that majestic opening to the Brahms' Second Piano Concerto, one of my favorite oh, right. passages <laughs> of all. Uh, right. and, he, and he had you do something that was really out of the ordinary, uh, you remember what I'm talking yeah.
1: about? Yeah, that was in a master class in Oberlin. So ah. I was talking about my first lesson with him in Bloomington. But you're right. I played Ramsey Flackenshire though, and he had me. I had to I had to enter with a kind of a big bass note leaping up to a chord, and, then, and again and again. And he had me envision the low note. He had me shut my eyes first of all, and then imagine the low note that I was about to play. And then he's like, also, think about the, you know, it's an F. and Think about the E right below it and the G flat right above it and sort of go over the contours of the keyboard in your mind there, you know? And then without opening your eyes, just throw your arm down and play. And what do you know? When I played it, it was, first of all, the right notes, and it had this depth of sound and confidence, you know, that that was missing before it. And what he was trying to show me is that I had, you know, all those years of practice built up a subconscious understanding of the keyboard, you know, I knew where the notes were. And I just had to get out of my own body's and mind, my body and mind's way to find that. Yeah. Um, and, and it made such an impression on me, and it so instantly changed my sound, and everyone said, oh my God, that was amazing. And on the basis of that, at least in part, I ended up going to study with him.
0: Hmm. You, of course, had many uh, important, uh, fruitful years with him. (laughs) It's interesting, at one point you say, I was so dazzled by Shebak that I sometimes uh, didn't pay attention to what he actually said. (laughs) I think that's a really interesting uh, observation. I suspect that that happens more often than we realize, where we are so thrilled to just be in the presence of somebody that we venerate to such a degree that perhaps that once in a while gets in our way of our capacity to, to take in just the nuts and bolts of what they are having us do. Was that a, yeah, that a, a was, serious issue? At
1: times it was an issue, you know, he was such a different kind of person than I'd ever really met in my life. You know, uh, so elegant. So from a different traditional, different value system about music, you know, so un-American, um, Uh, so tasteful, so concerned with questions of taste and never doing too much, you know. And then he had all these, you know, he had the cigarettes and the aura and the sense of, you know, being uh, basically a mystic of the piano. It's true, sometimes it was just so delightful that, you know, you thought you were, if you just imitated Shabuck how he acted, that you were playing better, but that wasn't true. He got mad at me a few times about that, too. I was playing Beethoven 109 for him one time, one of the last Beethoven sonatas, and I was playing, sort of self-consciously imitating him. And I know this as a teacher now, uh, sometimes, that if you see the student imitating your mannerisms, it's totally horrifying, you know? It's like, no, you, know, you can do some things that I suggest, but don't try to be me, because that's a it's a dead-end street, right? And Sivak basically said that, you know?
0: It's... Um, is this the occasion when you played for him uh, Beethoven's Eroica variations?
1: No, I played one of them, a different lesson, one of mine, ah. but as Eroica, he was mad at me too for, you know, basically that. In that case, you know, I took an idea that he gave me about certain humorous aspects in that piece. And I ran with it so far that he was horrified by how. Um, Uh, Over irreverent
0: it was. Right. He he asked you if you knew the difference between character and caricature. And you say the room went silent, absorbing this elegant, lacerating remark. I had converted uh, high humor into low slapstick. And this is, I think, towards the end of your time uh, studying with Shebak when you began to realize, in your words, that our time had run its course explain what it was like when you ultimately returned to Indiana University to do some teaching there and he was still on the faculty and uh, and now you were peers Uh, this was kind of an interesting shift of roles
1: it was very strange I mean we didn't see each other that much when I was also teaching in Bloomington you know Uh, every so often he wasn't in town that much honestly Um, as I remembered from studying with him. He was often in Japan or, or France or, or Canada where he taught sometimes. And um, But we would go into faculty meetings, and there I would get to see him do some of his, his famous shivakisms. One time the dean wanted to uh, come up with a mission statement you know, for the piano department, and people were trying to put up various possibilities. And I remember shivak smoking, also illegally, and then, and then he said, "Well, here it is. We want to teach excellent students very well." <laughs> that was it. That was his lacerating, you know, satire of mission statements. Um, so I saw him. You know, I taught occasionally. I'd play for him, which was a little bit difficult. Um, and and then we kind of stayed a little bit out of each other's ways for a while. But but I. I would say it's fair. A lot of the things I taught students had been stolen from him. <laughs> you, know, you have to steal from the best.
0: Of course, just because one is a superb concert pianist themselves does not necessarily mean that you are going to be uh, an able, uh, effective, even competent teacher. Uh, and yet, and nor, nor do all concert pianists want to be teachers. Uh, what has been the draw for you? in terms of wanting to do teaching, even as you have also uh, carried on this uh, extraordinary career as a performer?
1: I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, uh, but it's a, it's a little joke that I like to say. I, I enjoy teaching like any other vice in moderation. Uh, uh, you know, it's very hard when you get really absorbed. I have a really hard time when I'm teaching, not getting totally absorbed in the, lives and possibilities of the students uh and and i use a lot of energy on it so it gives me immense satisfaction to do and then i can't do it too much because i get exhausted Uh, and it's hard also to go back to playing right Um, the the bonus is often when you're teaching your students uh, as I do in the Music Academy of the West in the summer, often for a month, i they usually there for a month, teaching really gifted young pianists. Um, you learn things from them day by day. And uh, and that's fun. You secretly steal from your students good ideas.
0: Yeah. I think as a, as someone who primarily makes his, his uh, living as a voice teacher, one of the takeaways from your book, which I am thinking so much about, Uh, is when you say at one point, a teacher must destroy complacency without destroying confidence. And uh, there's the rub, because it seems to me that that is not a particularly simple thing to accomplish. Uh, What do you think about in terms of making that happen uh, with a given student, destroying their complacency but preserving their confidence somehow?
1: Well, you know, it it reminds me, (laughs) um, each student, you can sort of get a sense after, you know, a few weeks' time of their confidence levels, you know, and what sort of criticisms they can take and what they might need at the moment, you know. Um, I wouldn't say that my my skills in that department are the best, uh, but they're okay and you try to listen to the students' uh, psyche a little bit to see what's the best path forward. Um, I know Shevok probably did that with me a great deal. If he was ever mad at me, it was usually when I was overconfident, um, which is an interesting problem to have. Uh, sometimes I see that with students, Um Mostly the kinds of things I teach don't, um, they're about opening possibilities. So I don't spend much time berating them for, you know, <laughs> having a memory slip or doing the wrong fingering or any of that kind of stuff. A lot of the students that I teach are, you know, that's sort of past that point. Um, I think it's a totally different and beautiful thing to be teaching kids, you know, in their, when they're kids, right, and teenagers, you know, watching them try to become a master. Um, and that's a skill I wish I wish I had more experience with.
0: You also say one thing no one teaches you is how much teaching resembles therapy. How have you done uh, with that aspect of it?
1: <laughs> yeah, and then you have to... I, I think it's wise to cultivate at a, a least one layer of distance from the, from, from the students, you know, to think about them... Um, it's hard sometimes, you know a lot of times you feel that that some musical blockages some musical blockages are just physical habits you know, and some of them seem more connected to sort of personal blockages of one kind or another, and it's a very dangerous you know it's a, you have to tread so lightly and carefully and you have to really listen to the student also to see how they respond to their if suggestions.
0: Your teacher, uh, Gyrgyz Shebak, died in 1999, and you tell us that when you heard that news, the news felt like a warning not to waste my life and my time. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the 20-plus years since, uh, how have you gone about doing that, not wasting your life, not wasting your time?
1: Uh, If anything, I don't take enough breaks, (laughs) to be honest. But you know, I'm a very obsessive practicer and thinker about music, and and also, you know, writing too in terms of communicating about music. So um, it's almost impossible for me to to waste too much time, which is also a fa- also a failing. <laughs> um, so I I think that that warning from Schibach, um stuck to me, you know, but also all the incredible example that he gave of, of what it is that music making should be about, mm-hmm. you know, and, and actually Norman Fisher too, you know, uh, in a certain way. And many of the others, you know, they, they um, they are always trying to impart certain values, you know, things that are precious to them too mm-hmm. in music. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, your book explores all of this and also your own life, your childhood, your parents, how they helped shape you, uh, and of course, how you sorted out uh, ultimately who you are, what is most important to you, and uh, all of it is told so beautifully in your book, Every Good Boy Does Fine, A Love Story in Music Lessons, published by Random House, the author Jeremy Denk. Jeremy Denk, I thank you most profoundly for writing this wonderful book, and I think Musicians and non-musicians alike uh, will find so much uh, that is compelling and illuminating. I'm so glad we had this opportunity to speak. Thank you so much and best wishes.
1: Thank you to you too for the wonderful interview. Appreciate it.